One of the things that is really evident if we start getting into the lives of people is we get into messy stories. We get into stories that sometimes aren't pleasant, sometimes that uh, maybe even have some, like an onion, you just keep peeling back the layers and you realize, wow, that's not who I thought this person was. That's a little bit of what we're going to talk about today in our journey through First Timothy. Um, if you've been with us the last few weeks, Paul is instructing this young protege of his, Timothy, in his pastoral work and church leadership in the church in Ephesus, who was facing some challenges from false teachers, people that were spreading, teaching, and kind of taking the church off course in some of what they were talking about, and, and actually just investing in some things that were not worthwhile for the cause of the gospel. And so Paul, as he goes on in early in chapter 1, is listing some of the things that happen when people aren't following after God. False teachers, liars, sexually immoral, murderers, uh, just the pure evil that exists around us. In fact, in verse 10, he said, the law condemns all of these and anything else that contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news of the gospel. If you're with us last week, Adam gave a really wonderful perspective on what to do with that, that, that Paul's saying, this is what the law is about, and we've got these challenges in our culture, we've got these challenges in the church. How are we going to approach them? And the, the passage we're going to look at today, verses 12 through 17, it's almost a parenthesis in this topic as Paul pulls out from what we talked about last week and wants his readers to think, you're thinking about these false teachers and how to approach them. As we learned last week, the Old Testament scorecard just isn't very helpful. It's not really helpful for us to hold up the scorecard of the Old Testament law against our culture and say, all right, what do we do with this? Where do we help people to follow this? How do we hold people to this part of the law, but not that part of the law? So in a way, what we're going to talk about today is how Paul shows us what the real scorecard is. What's the scorecard that we use to determine false teaching? What do we use a score? How do we use this scorecard to assess what's going on in our world and in our culture? So open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. If you want to use the YouVersion Bible app, we have the passages there. Just go to events at First Free. And if you, English is not your primary language, you can go to efree.org slash translate, and there'll be a, a transcription of the message in your language. We'd love for you to follow along that way. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 12 through 17, and then we're going to talk about it for the rest of our time. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who gave me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ. In my insolence, I persecuted his people, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how generous and gracious our Lord was. He filled me with the faith and love that comes from Christ Jesus. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience, even with the worst of sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. Amen. Paul wanted to make it really clear as he's writing 
to Timothy about how to deal with these false teachers. He sort of pulls out and says, but I want it to be clear that I was no better than the lawless ones I'm talking about when I received God's mercy. You with me? Paul's basically saying, don't, don't think that I was better than them. When we talk about people that aren't following God, we need to talk about ourselves and realize that before God changed our heart, we were there. From where we sit in the church, especially if you're like me, I was saved at a young age, walked with Christ my whole life. I've been in Sunday school and church. I know how to live a good life. And it can become really tempting to judge people that don't do what I do, act as I act, hold the values that I hold. We can become militant in our zeal to purify the church. We can become militant in our zeal to purify culture. We can become militant in our zeal to make sure that the morality that we hold to is the morality everyone else holds to. And Paul's saying, let's just center ourselves on one thing. We were that world before we received God's mercy. Before we received God's mercy, we were the ones who were being judged. Let's follow Paul's train of thought here. After he lists this huge affront in, uh, in the church in Ephesus, people who are rebelling against God, teaching false doctrine, Paul reminds Timothy of this paradox that we're going to hang on to throughout the whole message today. In verse 12, he said, uh, it gives us expression of gratitude to Jesus for the strength of doing this apostolic work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him, it says in verse 12. In the English Standard Version, it says, he judged me faithful. He judged me faithful. But this assessment of Paul being faithful was not due to his stellar resume. God didn't say, okay, anyone who wants to be my next apostle, give me a resume, and I'm going to pick the one who has lived a pure life, who has lived a life of piety, and who's never really crossed any lines, and yeah, maybe he's fudged a little bit, but he's a really, really good guy. That's the guy I'm going to select. No, quite to the contrary. Verse 13 says, God judged me faithful, but let me tell you who I really was when God judged me faithful. I used to curse the name of Christ. I used to terrorize the people who followed Jesus and his teaching. To fully understand what's going on in this passage, we need to pull out a little bit and just talk about Paul. So I'm going to give a little bit of a review of Paul's life. Maybe review for you, I hope it is, but it's really important. We meet Paul, who is also known as Saul, we've talked about that, in Acts chapter 7. The early church followers of Jesus Christ were under intense persecution from the religious establishment. There was a great threat, they felt, of power, and they didn't understand, and yet they saw this power that was moving in this group of believers, followers of the way, it was called, and, and they saw the power of God at work, but they were very threatened by this. The religious leaders were not above making false charges, and they began to charge the followers of Jesus with blasphemy against God from the Old Testament law, blasphemy against Moses, undermining the teaching of the Old Testament faith. And this is what happened to a man named Stephen in Acts chapter 6, a man that is described as full of the Holy Spirit, full of God's grace and power. He was arrested under false charges. He was brought before the high council 
When they asked Stephen to defend himself against this accusation, he took the opportunity to elaborate on God's grand story, this plan that God had from the very beginning to create a people for himself, and after the fall, then to redeem this people to himself, working toward the ultimate end of God's glory. And Jesus Christ was the centerpiece and is the centerpiece of that story. He challenged them, and it wasn't received very well, so the religious leaders took Stephen and dragged him out of the city And they began to pummel him with stones to to murder him. But before they did that, because in order to throw stones, you really need to have your coat off, they found this guy named Saul who was there. And and Saul said, hey, let me hold your coats for you. And so it says in the text that they laid their cloaks at Saul's feet. And Saul watched their coats while they murdered Stephen, this follower of Jesus. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, we read, Saul was one of the witnesses... And he agreed, he agreed completely with killing Stephen. He agreed completely. And the believers were scattered because of the violence that was going on against them. And then we see Saul again in Acts chapter 9, where he's uttering threats with every breath. And it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 1, he was eager to kill the Lord's followers. He was eager to kill the Lord's followers. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters so that he could travel around the area to the synagogues and cities and round up the Christians, the people, they weren't called that at the time, but the people who were following Jesus, arrest them and bring them in chains back to Jerusalem so they could be tried and punished for following Jesus Christ. This was a war against the Christian faith and Paul was the general leading the assault. I think it's important to know this. I think it's important to be reminded of what a despicable, violent man Saul was. Last month in Texas, unless you were sleeping for a week, you saw a gunman who walked into a congregation much like ours, and while the congregation was taking communion, the cameras was all over the news and the internet, the cameras in the sanctuary caught this gunman pulling out a shotgun and beginning to shoot worshipers in the, in the sanctuary in Texas. If there were cameras in first century worship centers, I don't think it's a stretch to think Paul would kind of identify and say, yeah, that was kind of me. He didn't have a shotgun, didn't have social media, but he was kind of the first century equivalent of a church shooter. Christians were terrorized of this guy, terrified of him, because he was, his purpose in life was to kill Christians. And that's the scheme he was carrying out. And while he was doing that, he was on his way to Damascus to do this very diabolical scheme, and he was confronted. He was confronted by this bright light, and it blinded him. And a voice asked and knocked him to the ground and a voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who is this? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. If we could stop right there, I think that's a good reminder for us as Christians today in our society. It's easy for us to personalize assaults on the Christian faith. This is really about me. 
This is about me. So I need to man up and I need to be, I need to defend myself. I need to defend the church. I need to defend God. But I think a good lesson from this encounter with God that Saul had is it's really, it's really Jesus who's being assaulted. It's really an assault on God and his plan. He was blind by the encounter. He followed the Lord's instructions, though, and said, go into Damascus and wait here. So he went in, and meanwhile, the Lord talked to Ananias, who is another Christian, a strong believer in the city of Damascus, and instructed him to go to the house of Judas, where he would find Saul praying. And he was dispatching Ananias to go to Saul in this moment of prayer. And Ananias' response is classic. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in his paraphrase in the message. Verse, not chapter 9, verses 13 and 14, Ananias protested, Master, you cannot be serious about this. You cannot be serious. I mean, you want me to go to this house and talk to Saul? He's the one, you know, who's been killing Christians and persecuting us, and right now he has papers that allow him to arrest and take back in chains anyone who's a follower of Jesus so that we can be punished. Everyone's talking about this man, the terrible things he's doing. And now he shows up here with papers to do the same to us. And the Lord said in verses 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 9 to Ananias, go for Saul as my chosen instrument. Go for Saul as my chosen instrument to take the message to the Gentiles and to kings as well to all people. Remember what I said earlier? Paul said, God has appointed me, judged me faithful. What's the criteria? The criteria is God chose him. God chose him when he was fighting against God. That's the criteria. And that's the criteria for me, and that's the criteria for you, to be faithful to God at all, is that he has mercy on us. So Ananias found him, God's, God transformed his life. He was baptized. He began to be the proponent of the ministry of Jesus to change lives and to change the world. Now he's talking about the Messiah. He, carried the, he arrived in Jerusalem to meet the Christians there, pretty excited. As you can imagine, they were a little bit leery of letting him in the club. It's like, all right, what's the deal here? Is this for real? Is he just coming in to infiltrate us so that he could then arrest us? Then a man named Barnabas risked his own reputation by coming alongside Saul and saying, hey, I think God's in this. I think God's in this, and I think God wants to use this guy that none of us would have thought would change the world to change the world. I think God wants to use this guy to take the gospel where it wouldn't go otherwise, even though we're all afraid. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 and 17. Paul is simultaneously grateful for the mercy and grace of God that saved him, and he's fully aware of how blasphemous and murderous and what a wretched guy he was before he received the mercy of God. And those two things are true at the same time. That is, I'm incredibly grateful for the mercy and grace I have from God, and I understand that when I received it, I was not worthy. Back to verse 12. I thank Jesus Christ our Lord that he's given me strength to do his work. He considered me trustworthy and appointed me to serve him. Even though I used to blaspheme the name of Christ, in my insolence I persecuted the people of God, but God had mercy on me because I did it in ignorance and unbelief. Oh, how gracious and generous our Lord was. So these verses, we find the path to be considered trustworthy by God. It's the only path to be considered trustworthy by God. 
God had mercy on me. That's it. There's no other way that any of us can be used by God. John Owen, the 17th century Puritan, talked about sin always wanting to be as big as it could be in the area that it is. That left to its own, every, every angry thought would become murder. Left to its own, every lustful thought would become sexual immorality. Left to its own, every covetous thought would become thievery or stealing. And then I also have to believe from what I understand in the New Testament that the sin of, the seed of every sin is inherent in my life. If it weren't for the grace of God, uh, that person that I'm looking at on the news who committed some awful crime or who did something horrible to other people, uh, yeah, I'm not there, but the seed of it is. Were it not for God's grace and mercy, I could be that. Were it not for God's grace and mercy, I could do that. I often tell people when they come and talk to me after they've blown their life up, and, and I can sign up for that club too, that, that it's like, I'm, in a way, I'm kind of sorry that you have to know the depth of God's grace and mercy that you're about to experience. Because in order to experience that depth of God's grace and mercy, you need to need it at that depth. But how amazing that we never run out of it. That doesn't matter how much we blow our lives up. It doesn't matter how deep the chasm of our um, rotten hearts and the actions that we have, that we have a God whose mercy and grace fills it up. By the way, the phrase, you read the phrase, I did it out of ignorance and unbelief in this passage. Paul's not excusing himself and saying, you know, because I was in ignorance and unbelief, then my sin is different or less than. It's just categorically kind of different. Some, some people oppose God uh, like Paul did. He had a, an ideology he was searching after, and it was in opposition to God and what God was wanting to do in his story. Other people fully know God's ideology, and they are still yet opposing it. So that's the difference that he's making there. But his grace was poured out. The sense of that grace being poured out in verse 14 in the Greek is to be super abounding in grace. Paul echoes it in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, where sin abounded, grace abounded more. Where sin abounded, grace abounded more. That's super abounding grace. Paul was filled with faith to replace his unbelief. Paul was filled with love to replace his cruelty. God's superabounding mercy and grace fills what was broken in us and gives us what we need to be his servants. He goes on in verse 15 to say, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Now this phrase, this is an, a trustworthy saying, only appears in the, a few times in the pastoral letters that Paul writes. So First and Second Timothy and Titus. This is a trustworthy saying, and we don't know for sure, but it's almost like this is a common memory verse or a slogan or an anchor that we have in the church, maybe something like a, a summary expression of the heart of the gospel that we all need to know, one of those bedrock values that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And everyone should have that on their bathroom mirror and on the dashboard of your car and wherever you go to be reminded. Whatever's going on in the church, Timothy, as you're doing this church leadership stuff and you're getting dragged over here and distracted over here, over here, I can't think of a better centering reminder than Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Can you? 
and let's just talk family talk right now here at First Free. Can we make a commitment as a church that we don't want any secondary issue, whether it's a secondary doctrinal issue or it's a lifestyle issue of people in the community out there or the world, um, as important as those may be, it's really important that we know what God's Word says about human sexuality. It's very important that we know what God's Word says about a lot of other issues. But can we say as a church that we're not going to let those get us off track? So if we begin to feel like any issue is getting us off track a little bit, we can at least remind ourselves that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's, that's our centering phrase. And like Paul I can sign up as being the worst of all of them because I know my heart and God knows my heart. Keeping with this main idea then, after writing this trustworthy saying, he says, I'm the worst of all. And he's not doing some humble brag or kind of, you know, I need to really beef up my resume as an apostle and it's going to be better if you know how bad I used to be. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying is that we are rescued and forgiven and accepted by God. And we need to remember the depth of the brokenness from which we were rescued and the capacity to sin, the capacity and the separation from God from which we receive mercy. Then verse 16 is super helpful in showing us how God's going to leverage this. And this is where it really gets practical for us. How is God going to leverage this? First Timothy 1.16, but God had mercy on me so that in Christ Jesus, so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of the great patience with, even with the worst of sinners, then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Let's take a couple minutes and talk about mercy because that's what Paul is really focusing on here. Paul said, the mercy of God has come upon me so that God can use me and make me an example for other people to experience that mercy. Biblical concepts like mercy and grace and compassion, long-suffering, patience, those kinds of things, I like to describe them as branches of God's goodness, branches of God's goodness. So if we're talking about compassion and grace and mercy, all of those together, we're sort of talking about the, the goodness of God. Think about it if, if you're looking at a mountain range, you can get really close to a specific mountain peak and you can say, wow. This mountain peak is amazing. This mountain is amazing. Or you can back up and you can look at the whole range and you can see where that mountain peak sits in the whole range of that mountain range. And that's kind of what Paul's picture is here. Mercy is amazing. Grace is amazing. Patience of God is amazing. His long suffering is amazing. All of, and then we can pull back and we can see all of those peaks in God's goodness. And that's the emphasis that he's giving here. In Exodus chapter 34, um, I'm sorry, a, a definition I think that's good for you, for those of you who like definitions. Mercy is the compassion and love that flows out of the heart of God to undeserved recipients. That's a pretty concise definition of mercy. It's the compassion and love that flows out of the heart of God to undeserved recipients. Exodus chapter 34, when Moses was coming down from the mountain, uh, getting the second uh, stone tablets with the Ten Commandments, we read, Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his known name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger. I am filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. 
I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive the iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. And it doesn't use so many words, but I like that because sin has effects and consequences, and God's grace and mercy and forgiveness takes away that guilt and gives us a way to look at even the brokenness and the consequences that we face. Elsewhere, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, God is so rich in mercy, he loved us so much. 1 Corinthians 1, 3, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. And he goes on in that chapter to say that God comforts us when we go through trials so that we can in turn comfort other people who go through similar trials. You see, the thing about mercy is it's not supposed to stop with me. It's not supposed to stop with you. Mercy is supposed to flow from God through us to other people who need to experience that mercy. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says that his life is an example. Think about that. What about your life? Is your life an example? Do you, do you reflect and even acknowledge that before you received God's mercy, you were in need of it? Or sometimes do we just assume, no, I think I... I, think I I think I got the job because of my resume. No, none of us got the job because of our resume. We only got this position as children of God and people who could serve him because of his grace and because of his mercy. I know that there must be days when God looks down and thinks about me and shakes his head and says, when is this guy going to get it? You know, when is John Richardson going to fully understand my love, my grace, my faithfulness? That's, that's what Paul's saying here, is we need, to, we need to really understand our need. Last Saturday, my wife and I attended a memorial service for a young man named Michael. Michael is 30 years old, 30 years old, and uh, he was, his family was in the church that I pastored previously. And my kids grew up with Michael and his brother, great family friends. We spent a lot of time together, did a lot of ministry together. Many Christmas Eves we would celebrate together while our kids played. Our kids went to Sunday school, learned about Jesus, were baptized together. Uh, Michael died over the Christmas, right before Christmas, and his funeral was, or memorial service was last Saturday. I'm going to read for you a little bit of the obituary from Michael's uh, service last week. Michael's passions in life were camping, cooking, and eating foods from all over the world. The stranger and spicier, the better. Spending time with family, watching movies, and his dog, Daisy. Michael had a struggle with substance abuse that lasted more than a decade, and it ultimately cost him his life. However, Michael was so much more than his addiction. He was a kind, easygoing person with a big heart and a good sense of humor. When he wasn't dealing with his own issues, he had a desire to help those struggling with addiction and homelessness. He had experienced these things in his own life, and he was compassionate toward others who had trouble helping themselves. One of the great lessons we can learn from Michael is that when we see a homeless person or a person struggling with addiction, each of them has a story. Nobody starts out with the goal of being addicted or homeless. We should be compassionate towards those that society often views as second-class citizens. Pretty powerful When we forget that we're no better off than the person we marginalize, we lose the gospel. When we forget that we're no better than the person who we're judging, we lose the gospel. I know some of you are quick to jump to 
assumptions. We see someone at the corner begging for money with their sign. We're pulled up to a stop sign or maybe walking down the street in downtown St. Louis and there's someone with a box in front of them needing money. And sometimes we're, we're quick to think, ah, but here's the reasons why I'm not going to do that because they'll just use the money for drugs or they'll just use the money for drinking. Um, but I want to pull back a little bit. Before we even get to that point of whether you put $5 in the box or whether you roll your window down and give the person money or not, what's going on in your heart? Are you motivated to give the $5 because of compassion? Or do you just feel like you're guilty because you've got more than that person and it'd be quick to get him out of your way and then you'll feel better about yourself for the day? Or if you don't give the $5 because he may use it to do something foolish, are you, are, you, are you doing that to let yourself off the hook or are you doing that because you truly have compassion on that person and there are times and organizations and ministries that you're helping to actually take care of them? See, it's really a heart issue well before we put money in a box. And I know there are Christian leaders who will say, those of us who have means, it actually is our obligation. If we see someone, whether, they, whether we can confirm their need or not, if they are hungry and need food, and I have extra money, and, and I give it to them, it's up to them what they do with it between them and God. And yes, I might be enabling someone. I also, by not giving, might miss helping someone who actually does need some food today and is actually homeless for, for reasons not all their own. Um, and then, and then, and I can make a case for that. And I can also make a case for, you know what, you're enabling someone, when you give them that money, you're enabling them to use that money for purposes that are going to tear their body down, drugs and alcohol, um, which is kind of funny because that, that $5 that's so hard for me to give out the window kind of falls out of my wallet at Starbucks when I'm ordering that venti half-calf double mocha latte with a couple pumps of vanilla. The $5 isn't quite as important then but there's a principle to stand on when I'm holding it and I see someone in need. Are you following me? It's, let's back up from whether we do or don't. Let's look at our hearts. Are we moved with mercy to want to know someone's story? Are we moved with mercy to actually want to connect with someone who's hurting and broken? I got to tell you, sometimes when I see the homeless guy, I kind of resent him because I need to get where I'm going and it makes me feel uncomfortable because I've got ministry to do here. And, but shouldn't it be, God, thank you so much that I'm the one in the car and not standing over there? Thank you that by your mercy, I actually have a home to go to tonight. And for whatever reason, whether this this guy or woman is doing drugs and drinking and living a lifestyle for whatever reason they're going to sleep on the streets and God help me to have mercy even as I encounter them it's by God's mercy so our strategies for how to reach the lost need to be well thought through too often in the church if we could really talk we lead with the wrong thing we, read with, we lead with our need to be right our need to be right about a doctrinal statement or our need to be right about a way of lifestyle or human sexuality. And I'm not saying that's wrong. We, we need to study those things, but we lead with important to be right. And I think we need to lead with mercy 
And we need to lead with grace. And we need to trust the Holy Spirit to do in people's lives what he did in Paul's life, which is to equip and make people qualified as they grow and experience his truth. In March, we're going to be hosting a church leaders breakfast here at our church in partnership with Bridge of Hope Ministries in North St. Louis. Bridge of Hope, you'll remember, is one of our Take Back Black Friday recipient partners and excited about what God's doing to help us to connect with people in North St. Louis there. But we're going to be hosting a church leaders breakfast, and we're having um, a guy who is nationally known, New York Times bestseller, nationally known in his expertise and how to help people mobilize to really help homeless and housing insecurity in our communities. A guy named Ron Hall is going to be here at our church. He's going to do a Bridge of Hope event that evening. Some of you may know his book, The Same Kind of Different as Me. Also, there's a movie, watch it on Netflix, The Same Kind of Different as Me. I encourage you to check it out if you're not familiar with it. Um, just to help us, how do we as Christians... Take seriously and acknowledge that all around us there are people who need God's mercy. And how do we do it in a way that, that upholds what God wants and the truth of God's word and yet gets into the ugly, nasty, messy places of people's lives? To expand this principle beyond homelessness, mercy flows out of the story of God because mercy is in God's story. In fact, mercy is one of God's characteristics. Instead of policies to deal with the homeless crisis, what if, we, what if we know a homeless person? I'm not saying policies are wrong. We obviously need policies, but we're not going to trust in policies to change lives. We need to trust the gospel, and that means I need to roll up my sleeves and get my hands dirty with someone who needs to hear that. What if instead of fighting to overturn a Supreme Court decision, which may or may not do anything to change anyone's morality, we get in the life of someone, a young girl who really is having struggle and trouble with a crisis pregnancy, and so instead of changing and over, overturning a Supreme Court ruling, we're investing ourselves in a life. What if instead of arguing for or against gun control, we get in the story of someone who's angry, and someone who doesn't seem to know where their bearings are and they need someone to walk alongside them and be a mentor and be an anchor and help them to know Jesus and help them know the sanity that can come from knowing our creator. We could go on and on. Micah chapter six, verse eight. Know, O people, the Lord has called you, has told you what is good. This is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Verse 16 in our text today teaches us through experience of others, or through Paul's experience, through our experience, others are going to experience God's mercy, are going to experience that grace. Too often we lead with the wrong thing, but if we lead with mercy, if we lead with love, just like uh, Eric and Dawn's story is today, we get into relationships and then we stand back and we just watch in awe as God does what God was planning to do and God wants to do. It's not me doing it. It's not you doing it. It's God doing it. Nobody stopped Saul on that road to Damascus but God to do the work of change. And then verse 17, and then I'll wrap up. Paul breaks out in this declaration of praise for God's faithfulness. All honor and glory to God forever and ever. He is the eternal king, the unseen one who never dies. He alone is God. See, the, the credit for all this, 
as Paul said, is really to God. It's not to Ananias. Ananias couldn't say, did you see what I just did? I just, I just made Paul, Saul, this, this incredible leader in the church. Ananias didn't do anything but was obedient and available to what God told him to do. So God gets the credit. God gets the credit for the story that, that Dawn and Eric shared. God gets the credit for Michael's testimony last week at that memorial service. God gets the credit for all of the work we do when we invest in the lives of people who are marginalized in our society. Let's pray and ask him to get glory through us in the coming days. Father, forgive us, first of all, for sometimes assuming and living like we've got this position as your, your child because of our resume, because of our accomplishments, because of the things we've done to earn it. We're just like, just like Paul, that we can't bring anything to this that would say we deserve to be your children. It's just your mercy. It's just your grace. And I ask that you would help us to live as dispensers of that mercy and grace, as we think as a church and individually that the scorecard won't be having people behave certain ways or stop doing things or start doing things, but rather it would be the mercy and grace that you shower upon us that we can, we can then extend to other people who need it. And we want you to get all the glory and all the praise. And at the end of the day, we want this church to grow. We want your church to grow. We want people's lives to be changed and we want it to be all about you. Amen.